I think as parents, we assume that kids are going to just know the right way to do things. You have to teach them first and then train them by teaching them to do it over and over again until they actually get it. Imagine trying to teach your child how to tie his shoes without the practice principle. If the practice principle is vital for teaching such morally neutral tasks as tying shoes, how much more important is it for training children in Christ-like character? I speak to parents all the time who come up to me and they see what's happening, but they don't know what to do. And I just want to stand up and say, you can do this. Here is a solution. This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Curran and I am joined by my old friends, Tim McIntosh and Heidi Boyd. Heidi, Tim, welcome to the show and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, David. Merry Christmas, Heidi. Yeah, you guys too. Today is December 23rd, so we wanted to get in a, get in a show for everyone before Christmas. So, you know, while you're you know, doing your Christmas Eve wrapping or... And by wrapping, I mean, you know, spitting some sweet verse, uh, you know, or while you, maybe you're baking or running some errands or whatever, you'd have a, you know, you'd have some, some, some friends to keep you company, uh, talking about a great book. We are here to discuss Leif Enger's, I assume it's, you know, as I'm saying it, I'm wondering, is it, is it not Leif? That's how I've always said it. Well, I'm going to go with Leif before I, until I look it up. Leif Enger's Peace Like a River, a 2001 novel that I think we've all read before, right? No, I've never read this book. Wait, what? Okay, hold on. You guys haven't no, read this? I, David, I have questions. I have questions about this. I want to ask you some questions about this. Like, I, I've, never, I've never heard of this book before you put it on to the podcast lineup. And by the way, it's a Time Magazine's top five book of the year. Yeah. Christian Science Monitor book of the 2001. year. Yeah, yeah. Denver Post book of the year. Los Angeles Times book of the year. And I'm a little bit stunned that I'd never heard of it. And one of my questions is, how did you hear about it? And why did you put it on the podcast? I mean, I, I read the first 50 pages and I can see already why, but I'm curious <laughs> for the background and selection. Oh, okay. So um, I'm, I'm, uh, this is going to be different than I thought it was going to be. Um, I, okay, so I put it on the list in large part because I, many of our listeners adore this book. You know, it's a, I think it's a hard book for many people. And it was one of those titles that kept coming up on when, when I put up one of those Facebook posts about, you know, what book should we discuss? What would you like to, what would you like to hear us talking about? You know, whatever. Um, those are, this is one of those books that kept coming up on those lists. And so that was the number one reason. It's a book I really enjoy. It, I think it's the kind of book that's going to lead to a lot of conversation. And I thought it would be a really interesting book to follow on the heels of A River Runs Through It. I think there's a lot of similarities in them. So I thought that that would be, a, be fun, fun. Not just fun, but also um, enlightening and inspiring, I guess. Sorry, I know are like buzzwords, but you know, I'm going to use them nonetheless. And David, when did you first read it? Probably 10, years ago? Nine, okay. 10 years ago. I believe my, I believe my mom read it around the time it came out and really liked it. And I think I kind of was thought, you know, it has the blue cover and the title's piece like a river. And so I was, I didn't know what to, 
what to, what to make of it. You know, I was reading Cormac McCarthy novels that would have the names like Blood Meridian and all the pretty <laughs> horses. So, you know. Although the all the said, no country for old men. Yeah, exactly. Although I don't think No Country for Old Men was out yet at the time. But, <laughs> um, but I read it and I really, really loved it. And it reminds me a lot of... It's got some, some Barry in it, but also it reminds me personally of uh, Mark Twain. There's a lot of Twain in it to me. So that might be something that's worth exploring. What are your first impressions though? Uh, Heidi, you've never read it. So I'll, I'll ask you first. What are your first impressions? So I have avoided this book and I'll tell you why. I knew it was going to be great, but I also knew from things I'd read and what people had told me that this was a book about motherless children who have endured trauma. And those books get to me. Like I, I get really emotional about them. So I I wonder why Heidi, (laughs) I've not read this book. I know I've not read this book purposefully in order to spare my sensitive soul, but I love it. I can tell I'm going to love it. I'm so glad I'm being not forced to read it because I'm thrilled to read it, but I'm glad I have a reason to read it um, and to talk about it and to process it. I'm, I, so far I, I love it, but I have cried three separate times already reading this book. So I'm a girl, I admit it. So I mean, y'all know that, but I also, I don't just read academically. I all, this is the kind of book I'm going to read with my heart. So mm. I'm excited about it and I love it already. Well, you know, maybe we'll begin our conversation talking about crying here in a minute. Uh, right? Tim, what are your first impressions? It's, um, it's really easy to read. He's a natural born storyteller. He just mm. kind of moves from, yeah, anecdote's not the right word. He, he, he kind of moves very effortlessly from one event, from one kind of event in the family to the next event in the family. And each of these different stories, uh, you can already sense they kind of tie into this big picture that he's the, the larger narrative that he's weaving. Mm -hmm. Um, but the vignettes that I don't like the word vignette or anecdote. Those sound sort of dismissive. I just mean the short, I mean the kind of the episodes within the book, they're really gratifying within as kind of compact units. You can also see his ability as a storyteller. He's, they're going to all correspond to this larger story. I assume um, of what is going to happen with this family after these two boys kind of put them in the crosshairs, these two Mm. kind of ruffian boys from their neighborhood or from, from the town. Yeah, yeah. Crosshairs. So it's funny that you mentioned the way these episodes in and of themselves are really compelling, but then they, you know, presumably they're going to cohere and, you know, create this larger story. And as I was reading, this is kind of, kind of silly, I suppose, but I was thinking about stand up comedy while I was reading. Uh, The book is funny. Like it's got lots of humor, which kind of, which which kind of helps. um, It helps both offer some uh, some solace in the midst of all the, the the drama but also helps reinforce the drama I think and we can talk about the sense of humor if you'd like but I was thinking about how in stand-up comedy a really good stand-up set is does exactly what you're talking about right there the individual bits or jokes should be compelling and satisfying in and of themselves right you should you should um, 
laugh to varying degrees when the individual joke happens. But then by the end of the set, everything should sort of cohere thematically and structurally into sort of where you sort of realize, oh, okay, I see how this was all adding up. And for some reason, that that's how I was feeling about this book <laughs> as I was reading. I don't know if it's because I recently, you know, have been thinking about the nature of stand-up comedy and how great stand-up comics uh, do their jobs. Um, and how essentially they kind of are writing, you know, they're, they're storytellers. So I don't know if it's just been on my brain or, or what, but that, that's one of the things that I was thinking about. Um, mm. So already we've laid out a number of things that we can, we can chat about. But before we continue too far into this conversation, I do want to remind people how they, uh, how our listeners can participate as well. Don't forget that you can join the Facebook group. If you, if you want to do that, you can just search Close Reads in the uh, little search bar on Facebook and you can click the join button and join that conversation. There are what, a few thousand of us uh, talking and having conversations and asking questions and every now and then making fun of each other. And, uh, you know, good-naturedly. Um, and then, of course, you can follow on Twitter and Instagram. That's at Close Reads Pods. And if you also want to send an email to us, you can do that at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And then we also, of course, have the Patreon page. If you want to support the show and get lots of great extra content, great bonus content, you can do that. And the, uh, the site for that is patreon.com slash closereads. And we are going to be beginning our uh, bonus conversation, uh, our, our series on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment at the end of January. So if you want to uh, sign up for the Patreon and, uh, and get access to that, that would be wonderful as well. So with all that out of the way, where do you want to turn to first? David, can I mention one thing? Is it yeah. true that Heidi and I were talking about this off the air? Then probably not. This Mr. Anger... <laughs> That was such a great response that Mr. Anger is apparently going to um, lurk on... Their author is going to lurk on the Facebook page during did, this discussion. He did suggest he kinda, as much. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I, I, so I, uh, I wrote back to him. Crisp. On, we need to be crisp, right? <laughs> yeah, we need to actually... Okay, I want to talk about... Okay, hold on a second. I want to hold that thought. But I did, I did uh, respond to him and say, you know, we'd love to interview you if you're up for it. And he, he did tap the little like button. So maybe we can convince him to come on the show at some point, maybe at the end or, or uh, somewhere along the way and do a little uh, bonus episode where we actually talk to the author. Uh, maybe we the, can, maybe our supporters can, and our listeners can inundate him with Facebook messages. <laughs> hey, come on the show. We want to talk to you. We, uh, one of the benefits of doing books written by living authors and then also living authors who um, are, not complete Luddites. Um, right, right. So, okay, let's talk about this though, because does, if he's lingering, if we have the author of the book lingering, uh, listening perhaps even, does it affect the, how you want to talk about the book? Because as soon as he, he said that on there, I was thinking, is that going to change the way I ask questions or the kind of comments I make or, you know, places that I might be critical or make fun of something. <laughs> does it, does, what about you, Tim? Does that, does it impact yes. the way you do? I mean, I want to say no, but if I'm honest, yes, I've thought about it. And I mean, it, it, imagine writing a review of a book with the author of that book, kind of leaning over your shoulder, watching what you write. I, I can't imagine. And that's not an exact analogy to what's going on, but I think it's similar to that. I think, especially if he listens to the podcast, Hey, Mr. Anger, I really love your book, by the way. I just really love it. Everything I say is just in the sake of like kind of good journalism. Especially if he's listening to the podcast, um, I can't, I think it, it couldn't help but kind of affect 
you know, how you think about things and talk about things. And especially I think with regards to critical comments, which I think that one of the things about our show that I've enjoyed so much is that we are, what's the right word? Maybe aficionados. Like we love the books that we read and we by association love the authors that we read. And so we're probably critical second and affectionate first. And I think that's a good thing, but we're also right. Heidi, we're critical when we need to be. (laughs) And it it has crossed my mind. I've thought, what if there's something in this book that I think is not well done? Am I going to, am I going to say it like I've said with other books? And I think the answer has to be yes. It has to be yes. I don't want to. Well, he, we, if he comes on, he can come on and defend himself. Yeah, right. That's a great point. That's a great, great point. <laughs> Heidi, what about you? I mean, have you, do you, what, do you think that you'll have any uh, reticence to be blunt if you, <laughs> if necessary? That's, that's a good question. Um, I, so my first response was, man, I got to get it together. So my first response yeah, is self-criticism, <laughs> right? I hope yeah. I do a good job. But um And then I thought, well, how many times have I just wanted to talk to an author about their work and just ask questions and, and, um, and say, Hey, maybe I didn't really get this part. Can you help me understand it? That feels a little bit more more like that, like an opportunity to enter into the process, um, and talk, you know, directly to the expert on their own story. And you you all know that I'm, I'm not uh, authorial. Authorial intent is an interpretive tool, not the only interpretive tool, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big one. And mm-hmm. I've so rarely had the opportunity to say straight to an author, I loved your book, but Hey, help me understand this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that feels more exciting to me about it. So I was, I was going to say we should like, maybe Heidi, you should open up a Google doc and then you should just like keep a running list of questions that we could bring up with him if he does come on. But then I started thinking, well, does that become sort of like, a crutch like right. is that, does that limit our sort of um not our capacity but our instinct to to sort of let our curiosity take us places in the conversation you know like is it going to be oh well we don't know the answer to that but we can just we can just turn to him so I, then i was then i was thinking well maybe that's a bad idea <laughs> <laughs> i don't well, know it just makes that. a difference cool sorry heidi i was gonna say we kind of did that with emily wilson because we David, you had talked to her before and when we were going through the Odyssey. So just to refresh everybody's memory, Emily Wilson did a translation of the Odyssey. Was it two years ago it was published, you guys? And we kind of had um, like imaginative conversations with Emily Wilson. I really want to know why she translated these lines in this way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can imagine us doing the same thing with Leif Erikson. It's a different sort of... Anger, not Erikson. I'm sorry. I, you know, in my mind, I have said that multiple he's a times. Yeah. <laughs> he's a Viking. He's not a former. Well, I, assu- I assume he is a Viking, but <laughs> he probably is. Yeah, that's the first thing I want to know: is what is it like wearing that helmet to be a Viking? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lee Finger, first question: What's it like to wear that helmet? Yeah, <laughs> you have here. You have the mic. Just go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Monologue, please. <laughs> Well, okay, let's dive into this. Let's dive into the book proper. Um, you, we've talked about a couple different things here. I mentioned the sense of humor. You mentioned, Tim, the sort of episodic nature we're getting you know, he, early on. Uh, and Heidi, you mentioned the idea of how 
the sort of story that it is was something you avoided because it could potentially be traumatic or, or I guess the, the, the experiences right. of, uh, you know, motherless children who have been through something traumatic is sort of a traumatic thing to, to read, or at least it's something mm-hmm. sad, something sad to read. And you mentioned that you've cried at least three times. I kind of want to just start by saying, well, where, what parts made you cry? <laughs> and then right. we should maybe talk about what parts made you laugh. But can we talk about the balance between those things that it seems like anger is pulling off in a really interesting way early on? Um, when the section ends, for those who are, who are maybe listening on audiobook and you know maybe don't have the exact page numbers or, or anything like that, it ends with uh, Davy, the older brother of our of our narrator. It ends with him shooting the intruders who also had um, attacked his girlfriend and um, kidnapped his little sister. So a lot happens in those you know kind of off off page actually in these first several chapters, and then at the end of it, he shoots them. And it kind of just ends there. And we know that now, the, basically, the story is going to take off from here. But throughout these first four chapters, there has been this balance between humor and um, sadness, shall we say. And Heidi, did the sadness part win out for you, given that you cried three times? And I don't, right. I don't mean that it's yeah. a competition between sadness and... <laughs> And humor, right. but is that what is that what stands out most to you in these first four chapters? Is the sort of parts that make you cry? <laughs> I I think they have probably the most emotional weight for me, but not necessarily. They don't define my experience with the novel for me, if that makes sense. So this is a beautifully crafted novel, and the humor is really important to the novel because a lot of really sad things happen. In this is a very emotionally deep not there's a lot of really sad things that happen here in these first three chapters um as well as some you know beautiful connect like it's very obvious this family is very close and that the father Mm -hmm. is this spiritual uh central force in their life and and so it's not just a children adrift like they're they're very anchored family Mm -hmm. um so, but the humor is really important because it humanizes the sadness. It's not just this like very deep, sad journey. Um, and the the writing is so beautifully crafted so that all of those things are woven together to paint the picture of a very human family, not just this cipher that's going through some terrible thing. The humor, the, the humor kind of brings it into the realm of normal family. Mm. Um, and, mm. and, so I I really like the juxtaposition of those two things, and I, I I definitely laughed just. And when I say cry, I there's one time that there were tears going down my face, and that's when poor Swede is taken away by these boys, mm. and um and and then the rest of it was the other times were more just like the the gathering tears behind Misty my eye. eyes and yes, having to put the book down for a minute and think like oh those poor kids, but then. There's there is still this this thread of solidity. I mean, their name is land, right? They yeah. are in themselves a geography. They are in themselves a world, and that comes through. I think just as much as the sadness. Mm. Mm. Tim, I, you wanted to say something. I can tell by your face. I, I was in a play um, several years ago that the play ended up being made into a movie with Nicole Kidman. It's called the rabbit hole. I think I've talked about it on the air before. Um, the rabbit hole is 
about a couple that's trying to save their marriage after their son. I think he's maybe six. Before the play begins, the son runs out into the street and he's killed by a car. And the the play begins, I think maybe eight months later, and it's about these these this couple trying to keep their marriage together after losing their son. And the author had written, he was known mainly as uh, the author of plays that were comedies and they were very funny plays. And then he made this pivot and he wrote this, you know, extremely, extremely sad story, but it's also laced with humor. And he says, it's very uncommon, I think, for a playwright. He says the beginning of the published play that the actors should not miss playing the humor because it provides this kind of counterpoint to the heavy, heavy sadness that's laced throughout the play. And I kind of feel like our author has done the same thing. We're, mm. This is not going to be an easy story, but he's already got us laughing at some of the funny things like the interact, the, the, the story of the goose. Um, when they, when the family goes hunting together, it's just laced with all these very, funny, poignant moments, you know, especially it's, they're especially funny because they're seen through the eyes of a young man and all the kind of like discovery of, you know, getting one's first goose while out for the shoot, like those really kind of help add a little bit of sunshine to a story that has got some long shadows in it already. Yeah. Yeah. Some long shadows, good way of putting it. I, I, I think, go, go ahead. Well, just real quick. Sorry, David, yeah. I interrupted you. No, 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 you're you, fine. But, you're fine. Um, along the same lines as what Tim said, I remember seeing um, the directors of, producer and director of Breaking Bad interviewed after the first season and um, them saying that they intentionally cast comic actors for all of the main roles in Breaking Bad, even though it's not a comedy, because they said that comic actors have a greater but far more untapped emotional range. That it's that, and they did that purposefully. The idea being this is a drama we need, we want these comic comic actors who can add exactly what you're saying. So it doesn't just feel like this, you know, super, this intensity. Um, and I, I love been thinking about that ever since hearing it. I thought that was so interesting. Um, and really, I have no answers on that. Just speculations, just wonderings. Like, I wonder why that is, but mm. it worked so well in Breaking Bad. So hmm. You know, I mentioned that this book reminds me of Twain, and I think what you guys are getting at here kind of explains why. And I think there's something about like Twain when he writes, say, say Huckleberry Finn, there's this sort of register or this tone where the book is where it's essentially a comic in nature, like the way the right, the way the book is is written, and even the way that it's structured to some degree. But it's dealing in these very difficult concepts and ideas and themes and the, some of the scenes are really really um complex and and dramatic but the register of the writing is sort of mm-hmm. essentially comic there's almost like a shakespearean comedy approach to it. in mm-hmm. fact in huckleberry finn that's kind of a big thing in the middle of the book right um yeah yes. uh, a shakespearean comedy kind of breaks out in the middle of it um 
literally. But I think in some ways, that's what this book is doing. There's a sort of the, the register or the tone of the writing is sort of comic, even in the way that the characters interact with one another is, is very comic quite often. Um, the, the family interactions, as you said, Heidi, are very, are very uh, uh, humorous mm-hmm. and it, you know, sweet, certainly, but also humorous, like um, the stuff with um, the, the goose, as, as Tim said, and then a lot of the things with, um, or with Swede's birthday. Yes. Um, there's a lot of humor in that and the, the visitor that comes and yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, you know, these things that for children are, you know, it's just, they're just so frustrated and sad that this guy comes, but then the dad just kind of takes it in stride. But for them, it's this, you know, for the kids, it's a sort of a traumatic, <laughs> uh, very frustrating thing. I mean, I'm using the word traumatic loosely, but all yes. of that is sort of, um, it's sort of got this comic register. And so it allows the, the, more sad and and difficult things that are happening to um, come across in a way it doesn't make it less difficult. I wasn't that, that's the thing that I'm trying to figure out how to communicate. Would you agree with that? Like it doesn't make those things less dramatic or less difficult. It, right. But it, it it there's a counterpoint to them. Yeah, to the to the long shadows. <clears throat> yeah, which I guess is the nature of shadow, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, right. By nature, shadow involves contrast. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think exactly. It's it's not that it doesn't make them difficult. It's that there is a sort of... Um, I don't know what the word is. Someone, you can start talking if you want. I'm trying well, to... I, gotta, I, gotta express this. <laughs> I feel like with the comic... Like, for example, the... Um, I, I thought that the revival scene was hilarious. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. everything about it was funny, but there is also this undercurrent of anxiety to it, right? Because you he he writes so skillfully that there's a foreshadowing from the very beginning of the chapter that something's yeah. going to happen at home while they're at this revival. Um, plus, the there's so many amazing little objective correlatives to the emotional depth. The father lying prone on the ground, knocked out by the power of the spirit, completely oblivious to what, to the actual human concrete actions that are going on around him. That, that is an objective correlative, right? <laughs> but it's also super hilarious. And so for us readers, we are invited then to fill in the gaps in our own responses to the book. Like it's right there in written in the book, but we can, we can kind of, we're invited then to feel whatever depth we are capable of engaging with the story. If we want to just see Mm -hmm. it as a comic scene, cool. If we want to go a little deeper and experience all the range of that, we can. And so that comic register that you're talking about, David, is, I think that's a great way of putting it because instead of forcing the reader into the emotional depths. It's an invitation and the reader can engage or not as the characters can. Mm. You know, go ahead, Tim. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about a couple of characters, but I want you to go first, David, because I think it might change the subject. Well, I was just going to say, you, you also see it in some of the scenes where the uh, so-called you know, what our narrator calls miracles happen. So for uh-huh. example, the thing where it looks like his father is walking on air, like he's praying mm-hmm. and he walks off the wagon and he just keeps walking for like three or four feet or, or however far it was. That is told in such a humorous way. On the one hand, it's humorous because I think it's the wonder of this kid, this kid seeing it, you know, how he sees it is 
his imagination is running with it. And, and you, you're kind of left wondering, well, did it actually happen? Or is it just his imagination is how he sees his father? Are these really miracles that are happening? But almost every time a miracle happens, it's told in this comic way, which I think grounds it in a sort of, um, this might sound silly, but sort of a realism as opposed mm-hmm. to if you, if it takes it really, really seriously, then it starts to feel like sci-fi, you know? Right. And it, this book doesn't feel like sci-fi. It feels like realism where miracles are happening. It's if, if it's too serious, then it sounds like magic. And I think right. here it allows the humor also allows that to feel like things that are unexplainable, you know, and they, maybe their imagination, maybe they're real miracles that are happening early on in the book, we don't totally know, but it doesn't necessarily matter. It doesn't need to be explained because that comic register is allowing for the mystery to just be mystery. Does that make, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think there's another reason for it, David. And the other reason is that our narrator is a young person who, right. when, you know, when characters are being slain in the spirit during this revival, he's not looking at it with kind of the jaundiced eye of, H.L. Mencken or, you know, something, somebody like that. (laughs) He's, he's a little bit bewildered, but he also just defaults to believing that something has actually happened. This is not hocus pocus. He believes that something's actually happened. I want to say something else about the narrator. He, there's something curious about him in that he's kind of an admixture of the boy's point of view, Ruben, this asthmatic boy, but he also, the narrator is kind of omniscient in the way that, um, oh, what's another book that we've read that has an omniscient narrator that can kind of go wherever the narrator needs to go, can kind of stand on the you shoulder. Mean like in the way of, that we get in Austin or something like that? The way that we get in Austin. Like Jane Austen? When you're saying omniscient. Yes, right, 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 right. Okay. I'm sorry. I immediately thought Austin, Texas. What is Austin? <laughs> yes, like Jane Austen. Like she her narrators can see anything that Jane Austen wants them to see. And I think in this book, we do have a little bit of that because when Swede is attacked, we hear about it through the narrator and we don't hear it recounted to Reuben the boy later, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Reuben is away. He's at church. He's watching this kind of strange event take place where the seemingly Pentecostal minister, you know, is doing his work. But meanwhile, at home, Swede is abducted by these two vengeful boys. And we get that information at the same time. We don't get it later from someone telling Ruben. So I think the narrative point of view, not to get all wonky and academic about it, the narrative point of view is an interesting one. It's not confined to the eyes of the boy Ruben. Yeah, I mean, it's, we read a lot of different memory novels, um, mm-hmm. and it definitely has that 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 aspect to it. But Tim, let's right. talk about your characters. Then I think we can. I think we, you yeah. mentioned our narrator. So, what, what were you? What did you want to say about some of these characters? I, I think they're really well drawn. I especially. Swede, like I, I feel like I know Swede by you know two pages after meeting her. I'm like, oh, I know this girl. I know this girl. I feel like the brother of Ruben is Danny, right? Davy, yeah, Davy. Uh, Davy, sorry, he's a little bit more enigmatic, and I think that he's deliberately mm-hmm. um, kind of in the dark. Yes. Yeah, I, I, when I was when I was reading, I was loving that because I was thinking how y- y- you ha- for him to be. 
for those to both be true, they have to almost be on the opposite ends. Like if they're both sort of in the middle of knowing them, then it doesn't work. But she has to be someone who's very personable and we know her really well. Yeah. Davy has to be someone who's really mysterious. It has to right. be, he has to have them sort of pitched on opposite ends of that spectrum really, really distinctly for it to work. Go on, yeah, go on. I, I love that Swede is, um, she gets nervous when the goose attacks her, this wounded goose attacks her. And after that episode, she goes to Ruben and she's just an open book. She needs to be forgiven for not being yeah. Yeah. brave, yeah. courageous. Yeah. That we don't get anything from Davy. We get like a little bit of like older brotherly advice to Ruben, but we don't get anything about what he's thinking about, you know, kind of like where his heart and mind are. And I, I do think just, to, I'm just kind of echoing your point, David, the contrast of Davy and Swede is really well done. One of them is so open. The other one is so closed. And I found myself, as I was reading along, I found myself kind of trying to find Davy in the corner of the room somewhere and discern, okay, what is he thinking? Because this story is getting scary. There are these two vengeful boys that he kind of has a relationship with through his girlfriend. He's got to be thinking something about how he's going to handle this because it's getting out of control the vengefulness of these two boys is getting out of control really quickly. And, and by the way, can I just say one other thing? This is like a personal note. I, I know someone, a woman who is in a situation that's akin to this. Um, her ex-husband is kind of like lives to make her utterly miserable. And he's not been violent. But, you know, like you kind of wonder if he could turn that direction. And there's something so frightening mm. about it for her and even for me as her friend that she cannot do anything. She's kind of and I, I feel like this family, they cannot do anything unless they choose to get violent in some way otherwise they're just waiting for these two boys like my friend is just waiting for her ex to sort of do yeah. something and it's a terrifying position it's a terrifying position and so we can see in this story just to recount it for everybody the father discovers these two men attacking is her name dolly 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 the girlfriend of Davy and the father like takes the broom handle, a mop handle to these boys and like does some real damage. And then they in turn say to the father, we're going to get you and we're going to get your family back. And things gradually start happening. They, sh they show up and the front door has been, there's pitch all over the front door. And then the daughter sweet, sweet is taken. So you can just sort of, there's this sort of feeling of, we are helpless. We're an immobile target and they are bent on revenge and the police aren't interested in doing anything. So what are we going to do? And I just want to say it is so easy to let your mind go places that Davy's mind goes. So he, at the end of this section that we read, he shoots these two intruders and you can tell he had thought about it. He had kind of planned it out. 
The gun was in the bed with him. The gun was in the bed with him. And once they were shot, he kind of followed through and made sure that the living one was not going to live any longer. Boy, I mean, there's, it's, I don't even, there's a, there's a place, at least in me, where I can really, really sympathize with Davy's point of view. This is not about defense. This is about ending justice. a threat. Yeah. yeah, it's about justice. It's about ending a threat before it begins. It's really interesting that you say that um, because I, I was thinking about how if he just shoots them and the one guy happens to, the first guy happens to die because he gets, he's intruding and he shoots him. And Billy uh, Davy makes a really good shot. The second one, the guy is just injured, but he's obviously maybe immobilized. They tie him up, they turn him over, or whatever. That's one thing, right? Right. Yeah. That's one story. Yeah. And maybe Davy is, you know, you know exonerated. He's killed, a, he's killed a kid or whatever. Once yeah. he goes up and he ends the other one, totally changes. It's a different story. That's Absolutely. the moment. It's not the moment that changes the novel. Is is the moment when he makes that ultimate decision? Yes. Um, Heidi, go ahead. I think well, you were going to say something. And that is a turning point also for Reuben, who hmm. wants to look away but couldn't. Right. And the thing about Reuben is that he's always the witness. He's the one yeah. who sees everything yeah. to Tim's point that he makes that of, of the narration. Um, people confide in Reuben. Reuben is, he's the witness to the whole story, uh, whether it's, people telling him what happened or if he's present he's the one who sees things with his own eyes and so there's also there's now a weight on swede because she is the one who's been traumatized she's she's the one who's absorbed direct action from these boys there's a weight on davy because now he has not only committed manslaughter but first degree murder in the eyes of the law and then there's the weight on ruben who is a witness to all of it and then there's Jeremiah Land, and who he is obviously still at this point idolized by his son, Reuben, the narrator, the witness. Um, but there's also some clues along the way that he kind of distances himself from some of the action in his spiritual state. So is that the question that Lee Finger seems to be asking thus far in the novel about the father, and I haven't read it yet, is, is that a good thing? Does that bode well? Is that a redemptive pattern in the life of the father? Or is that um, something, or, or is there another darker side to that as well? So I, I'm so curious. Like I'm, I love how anger structurally has put different weights on everybody in the family surrounding the same events. And also, Heidi, um, to capitalize on your point, Reuben is the one that sees the thumbprints on... Yes, he's the witness on Swede. Swede. And it seems like there has been more, more has happened to Swede than has been, than Reuben knows and that has been reported to us. It seems like that to me. Does it seem like that to you guys? I think it's left deliberately ambiguous. And again, yeah. I haven't read it, but that he seems to imply that she wasn't raped, mm-hmm. but she was abused and molested mm-hmm. the extent of that we don't know we don't know at least yet um yeah. but there's you know those question marks bore into the minds of people the witnesses have carry their own trauma in a situation like that because yeah. they always wonder that's yeah. the question i mean that's what dave and davy and reuben they don't know exactly what has happened to these women that they love these girls in their lives and they so that's 
you know, that that's part of the weight that they have to carry. And also, Heidi, to piggyback on something else you said about the father, he's the most mysterious. Yes. Even the mysterious is the right word, but he's ambiguous. Yes. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot place him. And I, I know that this is why this is like keeping me like really invested in this book because I cannot tell if the father is kind of a man who practices flights of fancy to kind of distance himself from the hard things of the world, or perhaps he has the peace like a river and that these awful things in his world, he knows them, but can somehow metabolize them in a way that I couldn't, Ruben can't, Davy proves that he can't. I'm not sure about Swede yet. And, and, and so he, or maybe there's some other alternative about what the father's kind of um, viewpoint is. But we do get this little glimpse, the one that David mentioned, of Reuben looks outside at night and he sees his father seemingly kind of floating above the ground. And is he some sort of like, does he have kind of a, a miraculous ability to stand above the world? I don't know. Yeah. And then also, I, I think in the first, I, I read the first, I think maybe 52 pages, not just the first 50 pages. And if I'm not mistaken, there's not a mention of the mother in those mm. first 50 pages. And right. she's glaringly absent. Yes. Where is the mom? What has happened to the mom? And so these mysteries, the mystery of the father and the mystery of the mother are really, I'm really curious to find out what's happened. One of the things that makes the absence of the mother so profound is that she's, she's mentioned in the very, from the very, on the first page, right? So, cause he's talking about how from my first breath in the world, all I wanted was a good set of lungs in the air to yes. fill with. And it yeah. says, you know, you'd think that would be, you know, commonplace. Um, it says it even says not a thing on your mind but breakfast, and that was on the way. So the mother's there then, right? And then it says when I was born to Helen and Jeremiah Land in 1951, my lungs refused to kick in. And you know, there's the mother's in this opening scene, and then she's not there again. Yeah. Um, what I want to go back to what you guys were just talking about, though, the, some of the differences between say, um, or the father and Davy, because this is a classic example of a book that the whole thing just comes down to what the characters should do, right? Like that's the whole essential, yes. all the action of the book is driven by one character making, Choices. you know, a choice when something comes up against them. So they could have had this novel where the whole novel is, how do I, how do we deal with these brothers? Right. But the novel that we get is a novel that is the repercussions of choices that are made. I mean, all novels mm -hmm. are, but you have these two characters who are trying to figure out, well, really four characters who are trying to figure out how they deal with this thing that has happened essentially off the page it's only something that gets mentioned so on the one hand the father's the father's choice or the way he deals with this is he's slow to act he's prayerful he mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. he's obviously um torn up about it he 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 is worried for his family but he doesn't feel like he has the 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 um the action to solve the problem. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, and so he turns to, you know, he turns to prayer. He, he kind of, he turns to uh, not doing anything in a way he's, he's slow to act. And I don't mean not doing anything mm -hmm. in a negative sense. And then on the other hand, you have Davy 
who's all action. You know, he's we're gonna. This is what we're gonna do. And he's prepared to take the most drastic action that there is, and he's the counterpoint to his father. There, they're polar opposites in terms of the choices that they make. So, when the question is, "What should we do?" I mean, that's the question that they're all trying to figure out. What should we do? And then they each make two different choices, and then the novel happens because they each made a different choice. You know, you know I always go ahead, go ahead, go go. David, we've talked about. Um... Is, we have a lot of listeners who are familiar and getting more familiar with kind of the ancient classics. And one of the things that shows up repeatedly in the ancient classics is this notion of a revenge cycle that when your brother kills my brother, I must get revenge. This is like the law. And there's the, the problem is, well, where does it end? when your brother kills my brother and then I get revenge on him, well, then he will get revenge on me and then I will get revenge on him. And soon you have communities that are in families that are completely engulfed in this revenge cycle. And I, I, what I'm kind of wondering is, and a side notion is I think that Christ coming is a huge attempt, not an attempt. How do I say this? Um, Christians cannot continue the revenge cycle. Can't, you know? I think that's, you know, you get Joseph in the Old Testament. Like, I think a lot of these stories in the Old Testament are people making choices to end the revenge cycle, almost in preface to to what you're about to say about, about Christ coming. Yes. And so, I mean, this is like, what a gift to the human race, among all the gifts, what a gift to the human race that there is this kind of promise that justice can, that justice will be done and that it is not weakness to say no to perpetuating the revenge cycle. And I wonder if this book is, obviously I don't know, I've only read this section. I wonder if this book is kind of setting up a little bit of a juxtaposition between these two notions of revenge because Davy is kind of, it seems like Davy is fully enmeshed in the revenge cycle. I even wonder, I have a theory. Don't tell me, David, um, (laughs) that Davy has done something to these two boys kind of off screen after they, after they abducted Swede. I wonder if Davy went and did something to these two boys knowing that they would retaliate and he was going to be prepared for it. Right? That's, oh, I, that's a little speculation. Okay. Um, wait. Oh my gosh. Where was I going? Oh, these two <laughs> kind of juxtaposed visions of how to respond to the revenge cycle. Davies is kind of like a pagan notion of if you get me, I'm going to get you. And then father who gives his son, Reuben, a lecture on like the theory of war escalation, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like that's very deliberate. Like there's, there's something going on here that he is explaining to his son what happens when a wronged party attacks another party in, in vengeance in the father. It seems to me is very, he knows what is going to happen if they escalate against these two boys, it's never going to end just like, our relations with the Soviets in the 1960s 
as alluded to in the book. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's an... They just keep escalating. They just keep escalating. Those little references are important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of going on... like Dave mentions the the, the bomb or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. How do you... Did did you want to say something a second ago? I think you were going to... Something was on the tip of your tongue. Or am I making that up? Well, I... No, not this. I didn't necessarily want to say something, but I'm. I keep thinking about the father, and do you think he's ambiguous, David? I mean, you've read the whole novel, so that may be not a fair question. But at this point in the novel, uh, well, what do you mean by ambiguous? His. It's very clear to me, at least, that Reuben believes that his father performs these miracles. Like that, he's he's remembering it as if the soup pot did not empty because there was some kind of miracle as if he really walked off the edge of the, the flatbed 30 feet. He says, that's his memory of it. And, um, that he was saved by his father after 12 minutes of not breathing. Um, that is, and, and yet the father in his lecture on war escalation, Mm -hmm. is completely abstract. Like he doesn't tie it to concrete action, as you pointed out, David. He doesn't say how we should respond is the way Jesus responded. We should forgive our enemies and just let whatever happens, happens. He, Mm -hmm. it's an abstraction. It's now we're talking about war escalation. We're not talking about what happened to Dolly and how we should respond to these threats. So, I'm I, I'm curious. The, the question in my mind is, and I think the novel's asking the question, at least at this point, not answering it, asking it. Is the father abstracted from the real world in a negative way? Or does he see something that we who are earthbound don't see? Well, so on 25, uh-huh. um, the section, there's a short section it's four paragraphs, it's a little bit of dialogue. It starts with escalation. It just says, es- it actually starts with a piece of dialogue. Escalation, dad said. The water had cooled under the steam tent. Well, I mused, what should we do back? It was our turn after all. And though I couldn't picture dad carrying the battle back to Finch and Basca over a wrecked door, the very word escalation sounded like something bound to carry you up and forward, regardless of your wishes or ordinary sense. My dad chuckled and swept the blanket off my head. I think that little side note there is is pretty important. Dad chuckled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing, of course, nothing. Like he, there's an exclamation point there. You know, he's there is certainty in his, in his perspective here. We do mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. It's not even a question. What these fellows don't realize is we've already won. The victory is ours. I blinked up at him. <laughs> I mean, it's what you're saying here, right? It's an, it is an abstraction here, and the kid looking at him like. What? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I love that Anger is a good enough writer here uh, to to show and not tell. Right? He doesn't say mm-hmm. I was confused by that. <laughs> the 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 the, uh, the five words I blinked up at him tell us everything we need to know. Right? He said gently, "You don't understand either, do you, son?" And then the 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 word either there I think is is pretty important. By the way, mm-hmm. um, no, sir. And he swung me up and carried me off and tossed me on my bunk just as, I've, just as if I hadn't done a whole lot of growing up in the past few days alone. And that's the end of the scene. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, even for us as readers, the abstraction carries the moment, right? So we, we, we are not given resolution to the question that is offered in the scene. Um, he says, you don't understand. And the boy says, no, I don't. And then he doesn't answer the question. He just throws him up on the bed as if he's still a little kid. And we're left in the same shoes as our narrator. I mean, it right. would suggest the dad doesn't answer the question to him in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, it's both, it's both very effective. And then also, um, it's very effective in the moment. But from a storytelling perspective, the gap that it leaves for us as readers is, is, uh, is really interesting because it, it keeps us wanting to know more than just what happens. Right. We need to know what it all means. And he's, he's planting these seeds, these questions for us, where we're trying to say, well, for us, it's like, as you said, it's an abstraction, not just for, for our narrator, the abstraction is carrying the moment. For us as readers, we need something to carry this abstraction into the concrete world. And theoretically, that's what the story is going to do. I, um, right. Well, anyway. and I think I'm, I, I have to go back a little bit on what I just said, because the father does act. He does act. He beats the boys up to protect Dolly. When given the chance to protect this girl he does and so he he is a man of action as well as a man of prayer um so and and i think probably in this scene that you just read it is i agree the fact that it's so short for a skilled writer like anger tells i mean that communicates to us right that this is super important like pay attention to this little scene that is every word is meaningful um And the victory is ours statement is exactly what Tim said. That's a Christ-like statement. That's as Christians, we, we recognize, right? The humility of Christ here that when given the chance to act against evil act, but don't, don't try to rid the world of evil completely on your own. Don't, don't enter into the revenge cycle. He's defending Dolly, not taking revenge on these two boys. And that there's a big difference there. There's a very important moral difference in those two kinds of actions, the action of revenge and the action of defense. And I think the father knows the difference. He's a very morally centered man. I think part of the question of the novel is going to be, is that enough? It was that enough in this early part of the novel. Was that enough? I, I find it interesting, Heidi, that during the scene where he protects Dolly from these two boys, the camera eye of the retelling of that, you know, like violent act, the camera eyes exclusively on the boys. We don't know anything about the kind of emotional state of the father when that happens, when he takes the mop handle into the locker room and you know, like welts those boys. We don't know any, at least I don't recall, maybe I'm wrong. We don't get anything about what the father is feeling. We only get reported to us the sort of actions of what happened and the anger that comes from the two boys directed at the father and, and by association, his family. That's part of the reason why I find the father to be, <laughs> who is he? <laughs> I think we have hints about who he is, but we're not, the author is not giving us yet a, the full exposure to the father that we want. And I think you're yeah. right. I think you're right, Heidi. I think the story, from what I can see this far, the story is going to be 
is the father's like morally centered being going to be enough in this kind of maelstrom that began with these two boys and is being furthered by Davy? Is the father's kind of moral groundedness, his spiritual capacity and capacity, are they going to be enough? One of the things that I love is even that spiritual capacity is sort of, um, we're not totally clear. Obviously we're not clear on what it actually means, but there's all these different allusions that are tied to him. We have his name, obviously we have the name Jeremiah, which is, is the prophet Jeremiah there. There is the, um, the miracles that he seems to be able to, to perform. So there seems to be some sort of, um, connection between him and, and God say, um, but then we have the moment where he's sort of uh, what, slain in the spirit, as you said, Tim, when he goes to this church and the boy is shocked to see his dad lying on the ground like that. And that almost speaks to a sense of, um, I mean, I, how, how do you guys read that? I read that almost like I, would, I was surprised that that would happen to him because it seems like he's already so tuned in spiritually that that would be, you know, there like as if some kind of a conversion, mini conversion mm. incident was not even necessary, right? Yeah, but it's as if there was some. He he was longing for something more. That was the reason that he went up in the first place. But but then we have all these illusions throughout that it seems like he's already so tuned in spiritually. You know, whether it's that he can walk on air, or resurrect his child almost, or or whatever whatever it is, um, you know, make the soup go farther. So it seems like on the one hand, it's clear that he has the spiritual capacity and then on the other hand there's this longing for something greater and more that's within him and so we're not total, and that leads to him being a mystery even almost even to his own children even to himself I yeah think. it's funny because the the church service is not named i don't think as a pentecostal church service but it seems like it's the practice of a pentecostal church service so i'm just going to go with that my understanding of being slain in the spirit is it could be one of two things. It could be a conversion moment, like the second blessing of the spirit that um, kind of like radically furthers one's sanctification. Or it could also be just kind of like in practice, like a wake up call or a like a reinvigoration rather than a definitive act. And I read it to be the latter, the father. And I may be completely wrong here, but I read it as no, the father is at church and he has, because he has great spiritual capacity, he responds to the preacher in the way that the preacher wants. And he's slain in the spirit, but I don't, I didn't read it as a pivot in his spiritual life. I read it as more of kind of like a rekindling of something that's already there or, or a further kindling of something that's already on fire because he knows that what is about to happen is going to like take every, every bit of his kind of moral mm. spiritual stamina. Mm. That's how I read it. It's getting a big, dash of spiritual electrolytes seasoning yeah right right <laughs> right well and in a literary sense and in terms of the crafting 
of the novel, anger, <laughs> like a, you know, every, every time you write a novel like this, you're taking a huge risk because it could be, he not only gives his characters impossible choices to make, he also gives those same choices to our, to us readers, right? Because there's a huge chunk of um, Western Christians who believe this is a very real experience, right? Like it is who would read this and take it at face value as just, this is a, something that happens in the normal Christian life as yeah, given yeah. Yeah, yeah. an experience. And then there's another chunk of people, Christians or not, who would say, it's all just tomfoolery. He was deceived. Like that's their first clue that the father's falling from their pet, from his pedestal. Right. And so anger gives hmm. us as readers the choice to believe this or not believe it. And how you interpret those those specifically those kinds of choices, the miracles of the father, um, that the moral actions of the children um, in response to this evil that's done against them, they're, they're, <laughs> we're going to interpret this novel very differently based on how we choose to interpret those moments. Hmm. And I, I think that's the mark of not only a skilled writer, but a brave writer who says like, here, like make of this what you will, which multiple times in this section, Ruben says that directly to his audience, make of this what you will. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Inger's doing the same thing. I, I want to say one more thing about the choice of the name Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, I mean, our, our author is very clearly at home in the Bible. Like he's already kind of demonstrated a facility with the Old and the New Testament. And so he surely knows that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet and that Jeremiah is, he calls the people of Israel back to the Lord, but in his lifetime, they don't turn back. And we don't see that. I mean, if there's an emotion that is prevalent in the father, Jeremiah, thus far, it's not weeping. It's actually laughing. And so I'm curious what if I'm curious why the name Jeremiah is he going to be the one who calls and is not heeded or will his laughter turn to tears that's just something I'm curious about or third option Tim is reading way too much into the name Jeremiah <laughs> and actually uh Lee Finger was like no I like the name Jeremiah yeah I just that was a good name yeah, you know, that's a possibility also. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I think it's, it's super intense. <laughs> Probably not the third, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just really likes names like David and Jeremiah and Reuben. You know, just really into Old Testament names. And just, uh -huh. you know, just, they're just uh -huh. random. <laughs> <laughs> Land. Land, <laughs> yeah. Accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are at our hour mark. Um, wow, really? Let's let's go ahead and start. Um, yeah, I want to I want to ask one question, then we'll go to some final thoughts. Maybe these can yeah. can can uh, you know settle in for final thoughts or, or serve as final thoughts. What um, is there a passage for each of you that you marked that you think really exemplifies some of the the qualities that you like in Anger's writing here at the beginning? I, I was thinking, you know, um, kind of an interesting place to end a first show and I might make that kind of a habit because to say, okay, we're, 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 
you know, a ways into this book now, we're settling in and we're kind of deciding what we think about the way our author is writing. And so, you know, what is a passage? It could be a sentence, it could be a paragraph, a scene if you want, although it'd be best to keep it relatively, you know, um, chewable. that that kind of shows why you think he's a good writer or that you think is an example of um, what he is he is perhaps best at. Heidi, do you have something? Um, I do. And it's um, in my book, it's on page 17, starting on page 17, at least on the bottom. Um, and it is the scene we've brought up a couple times of the father walking off the flatbed and praying. It's the graph and that I'll begins... Begin he went on pacing? Yes, but I'm going to begin it a little bit later at I will forget none of this. Got it. Okay. Okay. I will forget none of this, nor the comfortable fluttery feeling it gave me as though someone had blown warm smoke through a hole in my center. Mm. Dad went perhaps 30 feet, paused and started back. His eyes were still clenched shut. I don't know whether he recognized how buoyant was his faith that night, but in the sudden quiet, his feet noiseless, hitting nothing. I could hear his supplications. Straining my ears, I was surprised to catch not Davy's name, but mine. Then his boot sole struck the flatbed again, and he was pacing as any man does, connected to the solid and the natural. I think that this scene is absolutely stunning. I, I love I love everything about it. I read this paragraph a lot of times because it is beautifully crafted. Every word is intentional and it captures so much that's already happening in the novel. Even that, even Ruben's asthma that, um, Mm -hmm. someone had blown warm smoke through a hole in my center. His, um, I love the fact that his father's miracles make him feel comfortable instead of like, they don't seem to strike this sense of otherworldly wonder in this child. They just make him feel centered and at home and comfortable, which is, I think, what a father's strong, solid love and presence in the life should do for a child. And that's what the miracles mean to him. Um, And I... It's hard for me not to believe in this miracle. I realize mm-hmm. it could be just a child's, you know, waking um, uh, disorientation and his memory of his father. But the way that it's written makes me believe it. As you pointed out, David, you called it realism. And I agree. I think this paragraph really captures that. And then one small thing, and this is my favorite thing about this paragraph, is um, you mentioned earlier, David, how... Uh, how anger shows but it doesn't tell. But I think that he tells in a very skillful way, like mm-hmm. a very, very skilled way yeah, right yeah. here. Um, when he says, I don't know whether he ever recognized how buoyant was his face that night. That's just a little part of one sentence. Um, but it tells us what is happening. This is the father's buoyant faith buoying him as, as Tim said earlier, above the earth. Um, he's this person who's between heaven and earth. He's mm-hmm. like a mediator to his children and of, of God. And he leaves just like weaves that. He kind of tells like those a who aren't. Exactly, exactly. And, and leaf anchor for the, for the readers who aren't necessarily looking for the symbolism in this moment. He 
he gives it to us, but in a way that doesn't violate that show don't tell principle of an author. And I think that's beautiful. And I love that. He did it several times um, in, in the course of these first 50 pages. And I was like, that was wonderful. You, you told us what you were doing here, but you did it in a way that's still beautifully skilled writing. That doesn't just say, hey, this is supposed to be a symbol of the father being buoyed by his faith, right? <laughs> so, um, so I Your attention, that. please. Yes. Yeah, and I think that the, the buoyant, how buoyant his faith was also exa- is an example of our narrator probably, there's an after the fact uh, wisdom like he's had time to reflect about it. He's had time to, you know, he's, he's older now by the time he's telling. And so he's, you know, in the moment he, he didn't, he, in the moment, he doesn't seem to be saying my father is very spiritual. He's very buoyant spirituality, his faith right now, but there seems to be an after the fact wisdom that he's acquired in reflecting on the story as he's now gone to write it. Uh, and I think that that, that kind of places our, our narrator's perspective for us you know, throughout the rest of the story, in a, in a sense, it give, it kind of subtly gives us uh, gives us a sense of that. Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying about the he's kind of in between heaven and earth, right? <clears throat> um, yeah, I love this moment too, and and uh, I love the uh, the phrase or the the sentence. But in the sudden quiet, his feet noiselessly hitting nothing. I could hear his supplications. His feet mm-hmm. noiselessly hitting nothing is one of those lines that's pure poetry because it's in, in, in a sense, it's kind of obvious when you hit nothing, right. it's noiseless, but also it's the, the, uh, the, the um, implication of what he's saying there is so profound <laughs> in something that I mean, he can say something so obvious and so profound at the same time. And that's one of the things that I think great poetry does. Tim, let's turn to you. What's your passage as we, as we wrap Page up this. 33, the right. middle of the first full paragraph begins with, then a jolt hit my shoulder. So another, like yep. Heidi's passage, another moment where it seems like something miraculous is, possibly could be happening. Hmm. Then a jolt, jolt hit my shoulder, and I felt hands shaking me as if jarring something loose. Light snapped in my eyes. Sorry, this is the boy Reuben at the church service where his father is kind of slain in the spirit and something happens to Reuben at the same time. Light snapped in my eyes, my ears plugged and opened, and there was a sudden easing in my lungs that showed me how hard I'd been working to breathe. Charged with fear and oxygen, I turned to see who had hold of me. No one did. No one, in fact, was near me except the Reverend Johnny, now talking casually with his younger brother. He wasn't even looking at me. But his hand, his right hand, was brushing my shoulder. I can still feel it, that sizzling jump inside my organs. I didn't feel good, not as I would have suspected the touch of the Lord might feel, but I wouldn't say it felt bad either. It only felt powerful, like truth unhusked. (laughs) Go on. I was done. That was the end of the section I was going to read. Well, now you got to tell us why you like it. I just think it's it's it captures his um the voice of the author it's uh it strikes me is it's it's whimsical and serious at the same time there's a there's a way in which you can kind of be an uh, an author's tone can be whimsical and distance himself 
from the kind of heartbeat of the characters. Mm. But it strikes me that Leif Anger is whimsical and near to his characters. Mm. There's a book that this reminds me of, and I won't go too long into this, called The River Why. I loved that book. I love The River Why. And it's very, very funny. It's written by a an author who I think lived in Portland. It's about a family of fly fishermen, not unlike um, a river runs through it. But there's something kind of whimsical and funny about his tone that makes his characters, other than the narrator, seem far off. Mm. I think anger is whimsical and makes his characters feel near at hand. Mm. As if someone's perhaps brushing against them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that line, it only felt powerful like truth unhusked is another, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just another great poetic line. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it ties it to sort of, um, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous but it's it, it sort of ties it towards a a um middle america like agrarian lifestyle mm-hmm. right like there's a sort of down-to-earthness the truth is unhusked like 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 a piece of food like corn or something like that but it also you know also on the one hand it's very earthy very you know very uh physical very tactile and then on the other hand it's like super abstract and and there's and it implies the notion that truth is is needs to be uncovered that it's mysterious and hidden and that you know one of the things that 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 god's doing is revealing that truth to us um so you know there's great poetry in that and tim you actually you stumbled over a line that i think is is really interesting that you stumbled over it um you you know how it said i can feel you you read I can feel I can still feel it it's that sizzling jump inside my organs, but it says I can feel it still that sizzling yeah. jump inside my organs, and I like that you that you kind of transpose some of those words a little bit because it's a good example of how he how he writes like I can still feel it is kind of how we talk yeah yeah but yeah I can feel it still is there's a cadence to that writing that is unique. Um, and a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit poetic. Um, I don't mean to draw attention to you making a mistake there. I just mean that, you know, it's just interesting that he, he writes that way. It's, it's a little different. It all, it almost sounds a little bit, um, like the cadence of a hymn. And that, I mean, that may be projecting that because the title of our book is peace like a river, <laughs> but it does kind of have an, a little bit in, and, and doesn't his, his father's the edition of the Bible or the translation of the Bible that his father reads, isn't it King James? Yes. So, I mean, if the King James version is the translation that's being read in the house, it's reasonable to expect that they, that the family has sort of absorbed a Elizabethan English cadence. So, and thus... I can feel it still rather than I can still feel it. My dyslexia made it, I can still feel it. But the cadence, as you pointed out, David, is I can feel it still. Well, again, I don't mean to be drawing attention to that. It's just... No, no, no. I I get it. I think a lot of people probably, you know, when you're reading it quickly, you just kind of default to however you might say it in your head, however your brain wants to put the words together. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts? Um, I was sitting and reading this morning before we started recording 
And my daughter, Lucy, who's 10, she came and sat by me. She said, what are you reading? And I showed her the cover. She looked at it and she thought for a second and she said, huh, I wonder if the author, I think she said the writer, Mm -hmm. I wonder if the writer knows that rivers aren't always very peaceful. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And I was like, you just said a mouthful right there. Uh (laughs) I'm pretty sure he knows and I'm pretty sure that's a major part of this book so well done leaf anger and good job lucy close yeah. reader and tell lucy so. tell lucy like hit him up on facebook right yeah if you follow him on instagram you'll see yeah. some not so peaceful rivers like on occasion and then also some some peaceful rivers that's right i guess it's kind of the now that you, you know now that you mention it the fact that they are both peaceful and not peaceful at the same time might be kind of the point I think so. That's right. That's that's kind of the point. Tim, do you have any final thoughts? I have no final thoughts, David. All right. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. Uh, I know you both have Christmas uh, things to attend to. You've got family to attend to. We'll we'll close it down here. I know that you know the, the listeners could just listen. You know, they've got long drives. They've got so much baking to do and all that wrapping to do. <laughs> but it might be it might be hard to uh, you know to wrap and listen at the same time. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, Heidi, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for uh, getting an episode in before you are, you know, taking some time off for Christmas and celebrating with your families. And like I said earlier, Merry Christmas. Thanks for thanks for uh, making it a great year on the podcast. Merry Christmas. To you, Merry Christmas, David. to you guys. Uh, for everyone who's listening, don't forget that next week we will discuss uh, pages fifty-one through ninety-three. So that's going to end with a chapter called "Late in the Night When the Fires Are Out," which is a good title, and uh, that will be the final episode of 2019, right? Yeah. So we'll, we'll, uh, after that, we'll dive into 2020. So don't forget, um, if you want to listen to the crime and punishment chap, uh, episodes that we're going to be doing at the end of January, you can do that. You head over to patreon.com slash close reads to get access to that. And then also didn't mention this earlier, Heidi, Tim, Sarah, Jane, and I recorded two podcasts, two episodes about our year, our 2019 year in reading. We shared some of our favorite books. We did a fiction episode, which you can listen to here on the regular feed. And then we did a nonfiction episode, which you can listen to over on the Patreon feed as well. And then Tim, we are going to be kicking off um, the As You Like It discussion in January as well. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Early in the new year. So get ready. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the plays the thing. We're going to do what four or five more Shakespeare plays this year. So there's lots of great content coming here on the Post Reads Podcast Network, including, of course, the Daily Poem, which is, as the title implies, every day. All right, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at the Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Merry Christmas, and until next time, happy reading. 